Hi, boys and girls. Like you, Santa is listening to the Merry Little Podcast of MyMerryChristmas.com. Greetings, Merry Christmas, and welcome to another episode of the Merry Little Podcast of MyMerryChristmas.com. My name is Jeff Westover, head flapper at the Merry Forums of MyMerryChristmas.com. The Merry Forums is the gathering place for Christmas online, for Christmas of all types, in fact. We're year-round, we cover everything Christmas, and we have the world's best countdowns to Christmas, Halloween, Thanksgiving, and all holidays before and after. A flapper, of course, is a reference to the women of the 1920s in an era when many women broke out of the traditional molds of Victorian womanhood. The term today is reminiscent of the fashion scene in Downton Abbey and of new dances brought on by the great jazz music of the era. They call them the Roaring Twenties, a heady time of progress that represented change for modern society. The 1920s is our next chapter of Christmas exploration and our series of Christmas in the 20th century. Here then, for one night only, each home throughout the English-speaking world should be a brightly lighted island of happiness and peace. Let the children have their night of fun and laughter. Let the gifts of Father Christmas delight their play. Where the treetops glisten And children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. We derive new strength, new courage for our work from the spirit of Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Christmas has two S's in it, and they're both dollar signs. Therefore, the Post Office Department, a branch of the federal government, recognizes this man, Chris Kringle, to be the one and only Santa Claus. And I want to look him straight in the eye, and I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no-good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, hopeless, heartless, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, worm-headed sack of hallelujah! Where's the Tylenol? The world is a snowball, see how it grows, that's how it goes. Whenever it snows, the world is your snowball just for a song. All over the world, they celebrate the birth of that baby. And everybody gets time warp and wait. Now, if that ain't proof that he's the son of God, then nothing is. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Fragile. It must be Italian. Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight?
You could say there were clashing sensibilities in the early 1920s about women. During World War I, traditional roles for women were challenged by the number of women who, of necessity, had to enter the workforce. They found jobs that women traditionally had never filled. They were production workers and heavy laborers contributing to the war machine. It was also a time when long-fought-for changes for women came to a head. The 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote, and reproductive rights started its march to controversy that would dominate much of the 20th century. The 18th Amendment affected women and men, prohibiting the sale of alcohol, a movement that had been debated for decades. Prohibition would endure the entire decade of the 1920s, and it impacted nearly every Christmas that was celebrated. Technology played a part, especially for young women. Mass production of cars brought down prices, and women who were working, well, they bought them, and they enjoyed independence like they never had before. All of these elements and more pointed to one thing, change. Flappers dressed differently, acted differently, and their extreme commercialism affected Christmas by advancing bigger inventories of Christmas in the stores, greater marketing of Christmas items by producers, and new styles that would shatter what Christmas looked like and the new glitz that would come to represent it. The 1920s also saw the mass marketing of many brands we still buy today. While many of these, such as Kodak and RCA Victor, have been around for a while, the 1920s were when they went global and started embedding themselves in the culture of Christmas with their mass advertising in new media, meaning radio as well as print. This era of economic expansion and technological boom saw the gifts of Christmas extended to never-before-heard-of products, everything from erector sets to mechanized electric washing machines. Christmas time, their sacred rhymes are ringing. Home fires burn and fond hearts yearn for home. But with you beside me, dear, cares all disappear. And your smile makes my life worthwhile. When the Christmas chimes are ringing and the Christmas candles glow, think of our hearts were singing underneath the mistletoe. When Christmas Chimes Are Ringing, a song performed by Louis James sold well when it was distributed in 1922. If we could stop the clock on that year, we'd see a lot of Christmas from then that looks like a lot of Christmas now. Families celebrated Christmas together. There were Christmas lights, Christmas trees, and even decorated Christmas towns. Christmas foods were very much the same. 
Stores stayed open late, parties were held nearly everywhere, and people still went to church on Christmas. Even the White House had a Christmas message in 1922, although this one had to be delivered by Vice President Calvin Coolidge because President Warren G. Harding's wife was seriously ill. This is what he had to say. Whatever it is desirable for a people to have, here it may be secured. Opportunity is open. The rewards of effort are sure and large. They are growing better. All of this leads to but one conclusion. Preserve American institutions. Perfect the relationship of daily life. Persevere and go forward. Old Cal doesn't sound like what he looked like in the pictures, does he? Coolidge himself was stunned when he heard his own voice on a recording and his wife had to reassure him that it was, in fact, him. Technology had a way of shocking a lot of folks in the early 1920s, even the mighty and the powerful. Contact with family on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day was the norm, even then for most families. Most, if they had to travel a distance, did it either in a family car, which had become more commonplace at this point, or they took the train. And if that didn't work, they made arrangements for what was considered then a modern Christmas tradition. It was called the Christmas telephone call. For more than 50 years, the telephone had been around, and more and more people were familiar with it. In fact, because the phone was not a powered device, it was common now to see phones in many American homes. Nearly 10 million homes had them by the 1920s. That fact is exactly why the Christmas phone call became a tradition. But making a phone call for most folks in the 1920s was not as simple as just dialing a number. Most were on party lines and had to pick up the phone and talk to an operator who would make the ultimate connection. The tradition of the Christmas phone call was so popular that the telephone girls, as operators at some of the biggest exchanges were called in those days, well, they had to work Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and that was a rarity for anyone who had a job back then. It also took quite a bit of coordination, even though this was the system that was set up. A party line was just what the name suggests. A lot of people had a connection to it, and conversations were anything but private there. Often, if you were engaged in a phone call, it wasn't unusual for someone to get on and say, hurry up, I need to make a call. And at Christmas, this could be a problem. So not only would one have to arrange a time to call mom or grandma on Christmas, they also had to make arrangements for that time slot with their neighbors. Oh, by the way, what would it cost to make that Christmas phone call? Well, that depended on the distance. Back then, a three-minute daytime phone call from New York City to San Francisco cost $20.70. Adjusted for inflation, that means the rather abrupt call costs more than $500 in today's money. Why would they go to all that trouble? Well, hey, it's Christmas. That's all anyone had to know. Oh, the earth be peace.
George Eastman was a bank clerk making $1,500 a year in Rochester, New York in the late 1870s. He was also a huge fan of photography. I'm starting to understand what it was like in the mid-19th century with the emerging technology of the time. Our episodes of the Merry Little Podcast about the Victorian Christmas talks about the telegraph and the train. But photography to folks in those years was really a wonder. My own ancestors embraced photography as early as it could be done. We've built our family library of images, and they date back now to the 1840s, which is pretty amazing when you consider that the first images of human beings were not captured until the late 1830s. For the rest of the 19th century folks, who would write in their journals about getting their likeness taken by a photographer, it was pretty heady stuff. In those times, and well beyond the Civil War, photographers traveled with large cameras mounted on heavy wooden tripods. The cameras held plates where the exposure was captured and a chemical process had to be immediately engaged in via a portable darkroom in order to make those images endure. Well, George Eastman changed all of that. Using a newly developed substance called celluloid, Eastman found a way to get light-sensitive chemicals to adhere to it without having to process it right away in chemicals. He developed a camera that packed film made of celluloid and chemicals inside the camera on a roll. He marketed it with the slogan, You press the button and we do the rest. Each camera had 100 exposures, and once those were used up, the consumer only had to ship the whole thing back to the Eastman Kodak Company in Rochester, who would later ship back the pictures with the camera reloaded with the new roll of film. This brought photography to the masses, and an entire industry was born. Around the turn of the century, Eastman mass-produced a simple box camera that cost only a dollar. The first Christmas... He sold more than a hundred thousand of them. Called the Brownie, it was Kodak's main product and what would turn out to be a broad catalog of imaging products that sold to consumers and commercial interests alike. By the 1920s, photography was totally mainstream and George Eastman was thought of on par with Thomas Edison. While Eastman gets credit and deserves all the credit for his innovations in photography, he needs a lot more credit for his revolutionary marketing genius. The name Kodak was trademarked and patented after Eastman was genius enough to think of the name. It was unused by anyone else, and it was designed to be developed as a brand. And that was pretty forward thinking back in the 1870s. He needed something unique and unforgettable. And he needed something that would define photography that was short and memorable. His mother's maiden name began with the letter K. And the word Kodak was entirely made up. It meant absolutely nothing. It wasn't a family name, a place name, or in any way connected yet to photography. And that was its genius. It was soon, thanks to the way Eastman thought, going to mean everything in the new photo industry. Eastman also recognized early on that his money was going to be made by selling pictures one by one. He foresaw that people would take pictures at weddings and on vacations. They would want pictures of their babies and of their old folks, and they would need a camera to take with them everywhere. 
He envisioned, and rightfully so, that the vast majority of people taking amateur pictures by storm would be women. In fact, his first and long-standing marketing position was to show his product being used by women and children in his ads. The easier he could make it to take pictures, and the easier he projected that image, the more cameras and film he would sell. The biggest part of his year-round marketing efforts came at Christmas. On our website, you can see the vintage Kodak ads from the early 20th century with Christmas as the centerpiece. His ads were like later paintings by Norman Rockwell. They showed scenes America was familiar with. The Christmas tree, children hanging stockings, families gathered for holiday meals, and the Kodak brownie camera was center stage to record it all on film. By the 1920s, one of the most popular Christmas gifts was a Kodak camera. They were affordable, made in America, and cheap. As ads at the time pointed out, to make it a Merry Christmas, make it a Kodak Christmas. Hello. Hello. Hello, little folks. Do you know who I am? Just yes. Why, you've heard of me every Christmas. Who is it you say? Hush. Close all the doors, and I'll tell you a I'm old Santa Claus. Perhaps you are surprised to find me hiding in this phonograph, for I'm right here inside. Well, I'll tell you all about it if you give me your word that you won't miss it to a soul. You've often seen pictures of Santa Claus, haven't you? With his great big white whiskers halfway down to the ground, and his ruddy red cheeks, and his jolly old smile. Well, I don't look like that just now, and I'll tell you why. All night long, I've been climbing in and out of chimneys, eating toys, and candy, and all such wonderful presents for all the little folks. My whiskers are full of and my beautiful red robe, with its trimming of white, is as black as black can be. I didn't want you to see me looking like that, so when I heard you coming, I hid in this phonograph. But I must be off now, for I still have a few presents for some little friends of mine. Let me see. Here is a toy steamboat. Oh. And a toy paleo. And a little toy piano. And now I wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. But before I leave, I'm going to sing for you my favorite song. Did you ever hear Santa Claus sing? Well, you're going to hear him now. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in Santa's Christmas play. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in Santa's Christmas play. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, children. Get up here. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. 
The gift giving in the 1920s extended far beyond the gadgets you could take with you. In fact, it was an era dominated by gadgets and appliances for the home. As we noted in our last episode of the Merry Little Podcast, the development of the talking machine, or the phonograph as it came to be called, really advanced in the 1920s. In the post-World War I era, the sheer availability of Victrolas, the major brand of the day, simply exploded. The machines were becoming cheaper, available in ever-increasing models, and available in more remote places. In fact, the December 1922 newspaper advertisement in Bismarck, North Dakota, of all places, illustrates just how popular the Victrola had become. The ad showed no less than 19 models, including a portable model weighing over 20 pounds, and the prices ranged from 25 to more than $375. And every single one of them was a hand-cranked model. A hand-cranked Victrola get, could get through well, a little more than one side of a record before having to be cranked again. Archaic those these machines seem compared to the all-electric boom that was happening with nearly everything else. Sales and popularity of the machines boomed, and there was one reason why. It brought music into the home on demand. The record companies got better and better at making quality recordings just as the Victrola improved continually in sound reproduction. With those improvements came better sales, and with better sales came more profits. With more profits came greater diversity in musical offerings. Most of what the record companies came out with was music much like this. the ice and snow where the eyes of no one may see. With my dear little men and my wonderful shop lives old Santa Claus, that's me. I'm building my toys for girls and boys, a labor of love is mine. And I'm more than repaid for visits I've made when children's eyes dance and shine. As time rolls along with a merry old song, at work I am always found. For I'm busy each day in a wonderful way, but when Christmas time comes round, then away I go, over the ice and snow, to finish my trip before the day is dawning. I'll carry my pretty toys for all the girls and boys to make them gay and happy Christmas morning. With my little red nose and my pretty red clothes and my hair just as white as the snow. When my trip I begin at each home I drop in, there's a welcome awaiting I know. So I'm just three feet high and four feet around and you're wondering how I can do it. They never have built a chimney so small that I couldn't get down through it. And I know where each little stocking is hung, the owner of it I can name. And whether it's new or whether it's worn, I fill it up just the same. When away I go, over the ice and snow, to finish my trip before the day is dawning. 
I'll carry my pretty toys for all the girls and boys to make them gay and happy Christmas morning. I'll carry my pretty toys for all the girls and boys to make them gay and happy Christmas morning. His name is Vernon Dalhart, and he sold millions of records between 1916 and 1939. He was a classically trained singer of light opera, became the biggest star of early country hillbilly music. His country career started with the first recording of The Wreck on the Southern Old 97 on May 14, 1924. The Country Music Hall of Famer reportedly has sold over 75 million records and recorded over 1,600 songs from 1916 to 1939, working at some point for nearly every record company in the United States. If that fact is true, he was as big as such modern artists as Barry Manilow, Aretha Franklin, or even Bob Marley. This music from this era, if it was Christmas, tended to be geared toward children, like this song was, or... It was straightforward, traditional fare you might find on a community stage. But there was money to be made by the record companies by adding diversity to their portfolio. And one of the largest growing markets for both phonograph sales and records was the market to blacks. That diversity brought an all-new sound to Christmas music that took it all to a whole new level. Bessie Smith would become an icon not only for black entertainers, but also for women. Her breakthrough blues and jazz abilities took the world, not just the black community, by storm. At the Christmas Ball, a portion of which you just heard, was her only Christmas song. But she broke so many other barriers and carried a number one hit record in a time where women were not recognized for achievement anywhere. In the history of Christmas music, she holds a very unique spot. I find that many reviewing Christmas music of the 1920s think that there was not much that was offered. But that's just not true, given the explosion of the use of Victrolas in American homes. This manual style of powering an appliance was not long for the world, however. Electricity in homes would revolutionize not only how things were done in the home, but also how the world moved outside of it. In 1920, less than 35% of homes had electric service. By the end of the decade, nearly 70% would have it, and the world would be using all kinds of new appliances inside the home because of it. That is what spread the sound of Christmas music from artists like Bessie Smith. Electrical power changed everything in the routines of Americans. Each passing Christmas saw something new come along that would require a cord to extract its magic. In 1921, a new electric stove could be had for 200 bucks. 
A dishwasher was only $105. A vacuum cleaner could be had for $57.50. And if you needed new plugs for all the appliances you were buying, you can get one installed through appliance or department stores for just $15. Naturally, the electric fad extended into toys. In a New Jersey paper of December 1922, it tells the story of a mother who decided to get an electric train for her son. No, not the kind of train that went around the base of a tree, but one that went around the backyard. In the sales pitch, the kid was encouraged with the gift to be both a train engineer and a construction engineer. An ad in the Providence, Rhode Island Evening Bulletin for the electric shop features appliances of all types and prices, but the toys they suggested were right on target. One dollar electric flashlights were half the price, and bicycle lamps that featured a white light in the front and a red light in the rear could be had for just $2.80. The Cleveland Plain Dealer at 1921 put together a gift guide of all things electric that could be purchased for Christmas. It included sewing machines, illuminated flowers, and lighted bird cages. For the Christmas-loving crowd, by far the biggest electrical device to own in the early 1920s was a set of Christmas tree lights. They could be had for about $3.80. In fact, most city officials begged people to give up their candles on their Christmas trees. A Portland, Oregon newspaper quoted a local fire marshal as giving these instructions, quote, Do not use candles. Do not decorate Christmas trees with paper, cotton, or any inflammable material. Use metallic tinsel. Do not use cotton to represent snow. If you must have snow, use asbestos fiber. How ironic is that? But above all else, Regardless of how popular they were, nothing in the early 1920s was advertised or in demand as much as one particular appliance that would become the centerpiece for news, information, and entertainment for the next 30 years. It was the radio. And it has quite a story. On Christmas Eve 1906, wireless operators on ships off the New England coast wondered if they were having a religious experience. Out of the midst of Morse code, dots and dashes beeping through their headsets came the sound of music, specifically this Christmas tune. made this so extraordinary is that they had never heard a voice or music over their headsets before. Morse code, which dated from the age of wired telegraph lines, did translate well with early wireless technology. It could be heard and translated. But voice and music over wireless technology of the day was simply not possible. And yet, on this Christmas Eve, they heard music and voice. The voice wished them a Merry Christmas. And then the dots and dashes started up all over again. The voice was that of Reginald Fessenden, an inventor and engineer who had been working on producing voice radio since Marconi's first wireless broadcast across the Atlantic. After his Christmas experiment, 
Fessenden continued working to make voice radio practical. In 1907, Lee DeForest invented a new radio tube called the Audion. It soon made transmitting sound modulations much more effective and became standard radio equipment. The radio tube was gradually improved upon by other inventors to increase clarity and power. For 15 years or so, voice radio was the purview of engineers and hobbyists called hams. To most people, it seemed amusing, but a novelty that would have no practical application. One obstacle to radio's acceptance was that the equipment was cumbersome, and it required a fair amount of knowledge and attention. Radio companies formed to build and sell ready-made machines. In 1920, Westinghouse, one of the leading radio manufacturers, had an idea for selling more radios. It would offer programming. Radio began as a one-to-one method of communication, so this was a novel idea. Dr. Frank Conrad was a Pittsburgh-area ham operator with lots of connections. He frequently played records over the airwaves for the benefit of his friends. This was just the sort of thing that Westinghouse had in mind, and had asked Conrad to help set up a regularly transmitting station in the city of Pittsburgh. On November 2, 1920, station KDKA made the nation's first commercial broadcast, a term coined by Conrad himself. They chose that date because it was election day, and the power of radio was proven when people could hear the results of the Harding-Cox presidential race before they read about it in their newspapers. KDKA was a huge hit, inspiring other companies to take up broadcasting. And Christmas was, of course, part of their very first offerings as well. From the National Labor Tribune, a newspaper in Pittsburgh, came this report, quote, As Christmas time draws near, KDKA, the Westinghouse radio station at East Pittsburgh, makes ready to bring Christmas cheer to young and old. Over the holidays from December 22nd to the 29th, Christmas stories for the kiddies and Christmas carols will predominate. Uncle Wiggily's story and music for the children are given every evening at 7.30, followed on Thursday and Friday evenings by Christmas stories, unquote. Christmas brought out special radio programs in communities all over the United States with small radio stations. What challenged folks wasn't the technology in hearing these programs, it came from what to call them. In Cleveland, they called them radio music programs, while in Minneapolis, it was Christmas in the air. It was all new, and it was all exciting. It was technology the American public was anxious to get their hands on. Crystal radios were among the first radios to be used and manufactured. These radios used a piece of lead galena crystal and a cat whisker to find the radio signal. Crystal radios allowed many people to join the radio craze in the 1920s because they were easy to make from home. Many boys' magazines encouraged young boys to make their own radios and included step-by-step instructions for the crystal radio. All the necessary supplies could be purchased for as little as six bucks. However, the sound in the earphones was, well, very weak and often interrupted by static. Early radios, including crystal radios, needed antennas to operate well. While manufacturers tried to improve the crystal radio, one inventive young man by the name of Edwin Armstrong worked at improving the radio altogether. He worked to implement the DeForest Audion tube into a radio. This was also known as a vacuum tube. Eventually, vacuum tubes replaced the crystal. 
Armstrong's first model of a radio using vacuum tubes was called the Radiola Superheterodyne. After companies succeeded in finding an inexpensive method of producing these tubes, they introduced a vacuum tube radio to the market in 1924. Sounds came through more clearly, even over great distances. In the mid-1920s, a typical radio cost $150, which was a lot of money. However, 70% of radios were bought using credit agreements, which means that consumers would pay for the radio over time instead of all at once. Sales of radio equipment skyrocketed from $12 million in 1921 to more than $840 million in 1929. With that kind of listener growth, you can see why in just four years there were 600 commercial radio stations that had popped up all around the country. This is interesting to think about in our day and age. Those 600 stations just appeared. In some markets, there could be as many as 35 to 40 stations sharing airwaves and broadcasting over each other to compete for audiences. If a person had the money for the equipment and learned how to use it, they can go into the radio business to broadcast anything that they wanted. And they did. The variety of programs they pushed out on the airwaves ranged from concerts to lectures on dental hygiene. There were no licenses or permits to obtain and no limit to what they could broadcast. Like the wild early days of the internet, those brave enough to give radio a try found a willing audience out there to listen. The hard part came from making money from it. To keep up with the cost of improving equipment and paying for performers, stations turned to advertisers. In August 1922, the first radio ad for a real estate developer was aired in New York City. Networks of local stations developed to share programming, and it all became big business. In 1926, RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, formed the first national radio network called NBC, which stood for National Broadcasting Company. This was the first radio jingle developed by a nationwide advertiser. Have you tried Wheaties? They're whole wheat with all of the brands. Won't you try Wheaties? For wheat is the best food of man. They're crispy and crunchy the whole year through. The kiddies never tire of them and neither will you. So just buy Wheaties, the best breakfast food in the land. NBC's first nationwide broadcast was the 1927 Rose Bowl football game from Pasadena. The burgeoning industry made the airwaves so jammed and chaotic that the Federal Radio Commission was established in 1927 to assign frequencies to broadcasters and restore order. The entry of mass communication into American homes meant, among other things, the development of a mass culture. The same songs were heard across the country. News traveled fast, and heroes like Charles Lindbergh or Joe Lewis were, in a new way, accessible to everyone. Technological refinements in radio continued. Early in the 1920s, headsets were replaced with speakers. At the center of early programming was the plane of records, and at first, the record companies welcomed the exposure. But as the radio caught on, they started to think better of it. After all, who would go out and buy a record if it could just be had for free on the radio? The natural evolution of things came by record companies at first 
sponsoring the performance of music and dramas over the radio, and then recording them for later sale after the fact. Muddy water round my feet, muddy water in the street, just God's own shelter, down on the delta, muddy water in my shoes, rocking to those low-down blues, they live in ease and comfort down there, I declare. This recording from 1927 features a young performer who over the course of the next 50 years would dominate as an artist. He would become the face of Christmas music, a star of radio, then of recordings, then of film and winning an Academy Award, and then of television, where he also defined Christmas. His name was Bing Crosby. But in the 1920s, Crosby was doing what every single artist of the time had to do, He was part of a larger group of orchestras who owned the radio shows and sold the records. It would take Crosby a full five years before he would bust out on his own. But when he did, he wrote a story for Christmas that begins in the 1930s. And that's coming up in our next episode of the Merry Little Podcast. We remind you that if you are an artist with music to share, or with a book or a website or a podcast, or really any kind of Christmas creation at all, please contact me, Jeff, at MyMerryChristmas.com to share it with our audience. And for all of us at the Merry Forums of My Merry Christmas, this is Jeff Westover wishing you and yours a very Merry Christmas. 